Hello, everyone, and welcome to, finally, sort of, a normal episode of the podcast. This is the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, your mostly weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey, and full disclosure at the top of the show, I guess I'm flying solo again. Uh, The world is a crazy place. Jeff just got caught up in some stuff, so hopefully he'll be back next week. Uh, for those of you that are fans of Jeff's, uh, if not, you know, again, we soldier forward, life continues to move on, such is the nature of existence, I suppose, until the time at which it stops. Uh, we are recording this on Mother's Day, so to any of the mothers, maternal figures out there in the world, uh, thank you very much, we would not be here without you. Uh, My mom is fond of saying she passed through the valley of the shadow of death to bring me into existence, and that's probably true for the majority of you as well, so be nice to your mothers, or again, uh, surrogate mothers if your parents happen to be enormous dill holes, I don't know, I don't know you. Uh, Alright, I think that's it as far as the introduction go. Oh, uh, wherever you happen to be listening to this... uh, we're on most podcasting platforms, so uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, YouTube, Transistor, Stitcher, whatever, uh, YouTube, or the 411 Mania website, you can it's embedded there. However you happen to have found this show, please uh, like, comment, subscribe, share the content if you enjoy it. Uh, I know got a smaller audience than some, but please, trying to grow it, share it around, tell your friends, tell your enemies, if you think they're interested, I don't care, I will take anybody, uh, okay, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into some of this stuff, because there was an event Saturday evening, UFC 249, and, uh, woof. um, few things about this event. Uh, Before the event happened, one of the fighters who was supposed to be on this card, middleweight uh, Jacare Souza, actually tested positive for the coronavirus. Now he showed up and disclosed that apparently he has a family member who's tested positive for it. Uh, He, I don't know which test they got that came back in the time frame that it did they didn't actually say which tests show that he, whether because they were doing the nasal swab which takes a little bit longer and is somewhat known for false positives on occasion or false negatives rather excuse me or the antibody test which is not really all that useful uh, according to most it's it, it, right now we just haven't really isolated most of the antibodies for it so just it's not the most useful test in the world so don't know which one of those came back positive, but Jacare and two of his corner men did, in fact, test positive. So his fight with Uriah Hall was scrapped. You can see video of him uh, interacting with people. He interacted with a lot of... Uh, one of the videos that got shared around was uh, Fabrizio Verdum running into him. A lot of people ran into him. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have to wait and see how some of that plays out. Uh, if we get a lot of people who were at this event in proximity to it te- that wind up coming down with it, as 
you kind of an epicenter nexus point, then well, the UFC might be might be in a rough position to justify going forward. But at the moment, um, again, that was the only fight that got called off due to this. Um, again, if you want to have a discussion around how responsible it what it is to hold an event at all right now, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of people saying that the system worked in this case. While that is somewhat true, you also have to understand what the system is fundamentally designed to do. The system is not designed to ensure the safety of fighters. The system is designed to, to the best of their ability, ensure that the product of the UFC goes on the way they want it to. And in that particular context, yeah, I suppose the system worked. So, you can kind of take that for what it's worth, I suppose. Uh... And the rea- I mean, part of the reality is the UFC's procedures and protocols in place had never actually been put to use. There's only so much theoretical modeling and discussion you can have before the physical reality has to come into play. And as with most things along this ve- in this vein, uh, the first time you do anything new, it's going to be the worst, right? There's always kinks to work out. There's always bugs. It's just, it's a thing. So there's, yeah, there's that. But they had a procedure in place. They largely followed through with it. Uh, I don't know, good for them, I suppose. Um, I'm not sure about the, you know, the ethical responsibilities in play for even running an event right now. But you're not here to listen to me uh, wax on about that stuff. You're here to listen to my opinion on the fights, such as they were, so I'm going to set aside my concerns, my comments, etc., about all of that, and let's just talk about the fights, such as they were. Um, this event had ups and downs. I know I, I saw a lot of people who were, you know, speaking very positively about the whole thing. Um, I can't speak positively about the entire event for a couple of reasons. One... This thing took forever and a day to get done. The broadcast started, uh, for the early prelims, the broadcast started at 6 a.m., excuse me, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and was a full hour before the first fight. Now, I'm willing to cut them a little bit of slack in the sense that, yeah, you had a fight fallout at the last day. And you had a lot of airtime blocked out, and ESPN was kind of relying on you to fill that co- fill that airtime with content, because they don't have anything else going on right now. So I I, I can kind of under I can understand the circumstances, even if I dislike. Yeah, but a full hour of downtime is just a lot. A lot of video packages. This was just a badly paced event for the most part. Uh, on the plus side, there were some good fights. So, and the main event, you know, the last two fights for different reasons. Uh, the main event in particular, unbelievable fight, great note to go out on for the show. But if I'm rating the entire broadcast, which in this case went, this went over six hours, I think. If I'm writing the entire broadcast, uh, it is more of a B, B minus, just because there was so much downtime. And I understand the circumstances. Again, let me reiterate this. 
I know there's some logistics at play. I know all that. That doesn't stop it from being, a, from at times, being a chore to sit through. And this was. So, just, just my read on the situation. All right, as for the fights themselves, main event. Oh, this fight. Justin Gaethje defeats Tony Ferguson via TKO at, what was it, four-something? 339 of the fifth round. I I don't know whether I want... You know what? It's more in my nature to start negative. So, I think... I think that is kind of where I'm going to start here, and I'll get to the... Uh, that's not because I think we should focus on the negative, but it's where my head goes. So, I'm going to start with some of the kind of negative here, and then I do want to get to the glowing praise, because... Um, the action from this fight was tremendous. This was a tremendous, violent fight. What shocked me? Okay, let, let me hang on. Let me set the let me set the fight itself aside. Let me just very briefly um, discuss what was lost. Not only Tony Ferguson's twelve fight winning streak, dating back to what two thousand twelve. Yeah, he lost in twelve. Then started in 13. So, the man hasn't lost in... That loss was May of 12. So, over eight years. A little bit over eight years. Undefeated. Most of those finishes in... Yeah, he only had two decisions during his entire run. One was to Danny Castillo and one was to Rafael Dos Anjos. Eight years, 12 fights... 10 finishes in the deepest, most talent-stacked division in the sport. I'm just... Can we all just take one moment? Because, look, Tony was going to lose eventually. Everyone does. The best streak, it eventually falls. Assuming you stick around long enough. It just does. The fact that there's a modicum of fighters who are able to avoid that particular fate is what makes it so special when someone can actually pull that off. I mean, if you look at this list, I mean, it starts... He submits Mike Rio. He abuses Katsunori Kakuno. Fights to a split decision with Danny Castillo that really shouldn't have been split. Um, Just at the time, there was still a lot of holdover from the top position, even if you're not doing a whole lot, is winning you fights mentality and judges. Submits Abel Trujillo, submits Glayson Tebow, abuses Josh Thompson. Oh, so excuse me, there were three decisions in that stretch, not two. Um, yeah, he carves Josh Thompson up like a Thanksgiving turkey. Submits Edson Barboza, great fight. Submits Lando Venata, sub, uh, decisions Rafael Dos Anjos in Mexico City at an absurd elevation when his output in the fifth round was greater than his output in the first. Uh, submits Kevin Lee after a rough cup round and a half or so. Perseveres, submits him. Uh, stops Anthony Pettis. Makes Anthony Pettis say no moss, basically. And then stops Donald Cerrone. I mean, take just a second, everyone, and appreciate the magnitude of that accomplishment. It's over. 
it's unfortunate that it never we never got Tony Khabib, and I'll get to Tony Khabib in just a second. But seriously, appreciate what that man accomplished, because you don't see that very often, if ever. I wouldn't say if ever, but you do not at all see that often. It is an unbelievably rare thing to see someone go on that kind of a streak. Unbelievably rare. And my hat's off to Tony Ferguson for what he accomplished. Remarkable. Sadly, we have now lost Tony versus Khabib. And let me be very clear when I say that we've lost it. It doesn't mean that Tony Ferguson and Khabib Nurmagomedov will never fight. They still might. But it will never be what it could have been. The draw of Tony Khabib was not just the stylistic matchup, was not just you know, two of the best in the world right now, probably the you know two of the three best, two of the four best, just unbelievable talents, unbelievable fighters. It was... There was a mystique that was built around the... It almost felt inevitable, you know? They'd make... I mean, the UFC booked this fight five times. You know, this isn't a scenario where everyone knows this is the fight to make. Or this, this is the dream fight. It's these two guys, and then it never even gets signed. It's just discussed or pitched or, well, we've got loose agreements in place. Etc. Etc. They signed on the dotted line five times. I mean, the UFC could not have done more to try and make this fight happen. They really couldn't have. They kept trying to make it, and every time it would fall apart for whatever reason, they'd both go their separate ways, and they'd both continue demolishing people. And then it would get rebooked, and then it would fall apart, and they'd each win a fight or two, and then it would get rebooked, and then it would fall apart, and Every time it fell apart, both men continued forcing the issue through in-cage success. You don't really find that. You just don't. I... And that was part of the allure, part of the mystique. It was these two unprecedented winning streaks. You know, Twelve fights in a row for Tony, eight years in this division... Uh, doing what he was, and not just, you know, eking out wins, doing what he was doing to people. On the other side, the undefeated, smashing machine of a champion. I mean, the, I mean Tony's never lost in the, sorry, not Tony, Khabib's on a 11 or 12 fight winning streak. Uh, I He had one fight that was a catch weight, uh, his, the fight with Daryl Horcher was catch rate because Horcher took it on very short notice. So they both agreed to a catch weight of 160, I think. But everything else has been at lightweight for Khabib. And it was this clash of winning streaks, of dominance, of violence. This, again, essentially unprecedented level of sustained success that these two guys were having at the same time. You just don't see that. Not very often. Again, if ever. And it's it's gone now. And again, even if those two fight, it won't be what it was. 
It just won't. It, it can't be. Now, that said, it would be one of the most on-brand things for MMA ever if we finally get Tony versus Khabib after they've both lost. Tony lost here to Justin. Hypothetically, if, because I think the UFC is going to try to do Conor Khabib too, or Justin Gage, they should do Gagey versus Khabib next. I'll be unbelievably clear about that. That is the right fight to make. I'm not sure they will, but hypothetically, if Khabib loses his next fight against either Connor or Gagey, I favor Khabib in both of those fights, but I'm not going to pretend to be shocked if either of them beat him. But if Tony finally loses his streak, and if Khabib finally loses his streak, and then at that point they've both gone, you know, they're both sitting at records of, you know, say 12 and 1 in their last 13 fights. And oh now now we can make the fight. Now the fight will come together. Again, that's just one of the most on-brand stupid MMA things that could possibly be. So that's probably what's going to happen knowing the perverse humor of whoever oversees MMA on an existential or metaphysical level. For just you know, we've we tried this and they built these massive winning streaks and they both finally lose and we finally get that fight, and it'll I still think it would be a great fight, but it wouldn't be what it was, it just wouldn't. So, a moment of reflection on what was lost, and again, a moment of congratulations to all parties for trying to make it happen. There's a lot of times that fights like that don't really get made when they should. You know, uh, Chuck versus Vanderlei, for example. I know a lot of people like that fight, and there's reason to like it. But it took place a few years after it should have, objectively. Uh, you know, Floyd versus you know, uh, Mayweather versus Pacquiao, several years after it should have happened, if we're talking about, you know, peak athleticism on both parts. Uh, it, there's other examples. I don't want to belabor the point. There's other fights that, you know, should have been made and no real attempt was made to make them. I mean, again, Chuck versus Vanderlei, there was you know, overtures made trying to get that fight together before it actually happened, but it never got close. Not really. This fight was signed five times. Khabib fell out twice, Tony fell out twice, and a global pandemic broke out. There's nothing more that could have been done to make this fight happen. It just, sadly, was not meant to be, apparently. So, again, a moment of reflection for that, but we will not dwell on that. We will not. Uh, so, as for the fight itself between Gagey and... Tony. Good lord, this fight. Um, I got done with this fight and I felt like I needed a cigarette. This was a brutal, brutal fight. Um, I don't know what Tony saw in... Or I don't know what Justin saw in his tape study or what kind of read he got early. But he got a read on Tony very quickly. And he punished Tony Ferguson a lot. 
I'm going to talk about this fight again a little bit, but I, I want to try and get this point across, I think, first. Because I'm going to say something, and so let me, I need to start by properly setting it up. It's not that Tony Ferguson did not find success in this fight. He did. In fact, he dropped Justin at the end of the second round with an upper, with a Mortal Kombat-style uppercut. My eyes bugged out of my head when he landed that. It's like, oh, wow. It, I don't think Justin was saved by the bell, you know, in air quotes, like Tony was that close to finishing him. But he dropped, he ro- he dropped him and he rocked him, for sure. And Tony's jab was working on occasion. Tony had found a few leg kicks. So, again, I don't want to... Tony Ferguson was not a punching bag. But this was, I think, relative to expectations, certainly. This was a... This was not a very competitive fight. Tony had success. Be very clear about that. But the bulk of this fight was a lot of damage that Justin Gagey put on Tony Ferguson. I mean, I don't know what Tony... I don't know what Tony Ferguson's chin is made of. It is not a substance of this earth. Uh, now, some of this is because Tony's pretty good about rolling with punches. Uh, he's good about taking a little bit of the sting off of them. And, you know... He's not the best shoulder roller, but he's okay at it, and it does kind of deflect. There's a lot of punch that Justin was kind of landing that sounded and maybe looked a little bit more devastating than they were because of the complete lack of crowd noise, so you could hear everything. You could hear any time the glove made contact with you know, a shoulder. And Tony's you know moving with them, so they, made, they might have looked a bit more devastating than they were. Then there were other times... Justin would just catch him flush. I mean, that did happen. But Tony took... Tony never got knocked down in this fight. All right, That's, to me, one of the most shocking things. There was one knockdown in this entire fight. Gagey got knocked down. Tony took a mountain of abuse from one of the hardest punchers, if not the hardest pure puncher in that division. Justin was constantly splitting his timing, coming in with a straight right left hook, constantly ducking and weaving under a punch, exiting with a left hook, constantly leg kicking. Uh, And, I mean, so many other people have taken a fraction of the abuse that Justin Gagey gave Tony Ferguson and just been unconscious or just done. Tony took a lot of physical abuse. Both of his eyes were cut. Uh, His right orbital bone was broken. Uh, His nose was broken. He took a lot of abuse, and he never fell over. He got got funky-legged a few times, but he never... He was never dropped. I am... uh, It was remarkable. Watching all of those punches land, and again, some of them he rolled a little bit with, some of them he took some of the sting off. Some of them were just flush. Like, just, nope, I'm not going down. And, again, Edson Barboza took, great fighter, took a fraction of that and was unconscious. James Vick, you know, a little bit chinny, 
Uh, you know, essentially one punch. Done. Uh, Cerrone. Donald Cerrone's a tough guy. Cerrone got hit once, wobbled, dropped, finished in the first round. A fraction of what Justin Gagey put on Tony Ferguson has completely ended some very, very good fighters. And Tony just would not go down. Um, the fight ends again late in the fifth. Uh, after Tony's nose gets broken, uh, he just he starts walking backwards and turning away from Gagey, and uh, it was a perfectly acceptable stoppage, I think. You, know, you see this in boxing more than you see in MMA when just you've seen someone take enough damage, and maybe they're not getting bombed on in the moment. Uh, maybe they're still, you know, a little bit mobile, but just the totality of accumulation of damage at this point in time makes you go, okay, we're done here. Uh, this was a wonderful performance by Justin Gagey, a beautiful, technical, violent display. Gagey had so much good stuff going for him in this fight. Uh, he came out and he was throwing bombs early. Gaethje fought this fight almost backwards from how you would kind of do it tactically. Um, if you... The general thought, and again, this is a general thought, not a law written in stone. You start technical, you slowly begin to build up damage, you slowly break down your opponent, and then you start building to more power. You start building to the bombs. Now, again... I'm sure anyone watching this goes, but there's you know, all these examples of how to do it differently. And okay, again, this is a general rule. Gagey did this backwards. He came out in the first round, he was throwing his whole life into his punches. I mean, he was putting everything into that. And again, he landed a lot. Then Trevor Whitman, who does not get enough credit as a coach, I think. That man... Now again... That doesn't mean that all of his fighters are perfect, and it doesn't mean he's an infallible font of truth and wisdom. But he turned Rose Namajunas into the woman who bested Ioana, who knocked Ioana out cold, essentially, in the first round. Knocked her out. Beat her in the second in the second fight. He turned her into a champion at the expense of a woman that a lot of us were struggling to see a real way to beat. Now he's orchestrated Justin Gaethje, turning around from all-action, one-way, violence brawler to a much more patient, much more thoughtful uh, wrecking machine who just stopped Tony Ferguson. Again, Trevor Whitman is an exceptional coach in that respect and needs... I know he kind of eschews the spotlight in a lot of ways, but he deserves a tremendous amount of respect for what he has been able to do with some fighters. But he, uh, Whitman told Gaethje between... I think it was between rounds two and three. Uh, it was either between two and three or three and four. But he told Gaethje, take 10% off of your punches. You're trying to kill him with every shot. Take 10% off. Now, there's a couple of reasons that was, I think, the best advice possible. One is gas tank preservation. 
doing something at a little bit less of an exertion rate means you can do it longer. The other was it actually has to do with the technique because if you're putting all of your weight, all of your power into a punch, sometimes you tense up before you throw it. Sometimes it doesn't. You want to get to the target more than anything else, and taking a little bit of force and muscle tension off of that might actually have made things more fluid, help them connect easier instead of just everything I've got into every punch. And he told him in the fifth. Uh, Gagey was happy, having a good time, and Trevor's message to him was, don't get, don't have too much fun, don't get too happy. You remember what happened the last time, and Gagey, talking with him, says, yeah, I lost twice. Uh, part of his own admission when he was fighting Al- Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier, some of the, one of the reasons he believes he ran into problems in that was he kind of got away from some of the technical stuff and start, was just complacent, having a good time in the fight. And Whitman reminding him in the fifth round, you know, you're winning pretty handily. I thought, I think I gave Tony the second based on the knockdown, but other than that, Gagey was winning that round. I think one of the official judges even gave Gagey that second round, even with the knockdown, you know, which I don't think is wrong, by the way. I think you can very clearly make a case for that. You are up in this fight. You can, don't, don't go into a shell. You know, don't stop doing what you're doing, but don't get complacent. Don't throw this away. (laughs) And it was absolutely, again, it was absolutely the right advice to give. It got Gage, look at where it got Gagey to as far as the finish line goes. Um, Gagey's upper body movement in this fight was, uh, was great. He made Tony Ferguson miss a lot. Uh, anytime they'd get close and Tony was swinging, one of Tony's best weapons is his jab. And that, from either stance, actually. And that landed. Again, it's not like Gagey had nothing but success, but this was taken in totality not as, just not horribly competitive. Anytime Tony found success, Gagey took it away from him rather quickly. Uh, his upper body movement was really, really good. Uh, he slipped a lot of punches. He countered very well. He was still leg kicking. Those leg kicks he landed did, they had some kind of an effect on Tony, I think. Uh, Gagey's ability to... His leg kicks are very, very damaging. And especially... He throws them from closer than you expect. A lot of guys only leg kick at distance. And Gagey likes kicking from close range when he can kind of feel you. Uh, and it it changes things, because a lot of the time when you get into the pocket range, you know, you, you're you a little bit more settled. And you certainly have a much harder time defending your legs properly when you're in that position than you do when you are not. When you're at distance, when you can react to it. Being there and being, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say like completely flat on your feet, but with your weight more settled. So a bad time to get hit with a leg kick, man. <laughs> uh, Gagey's really good at that. Uh, I think the leg kicks played a big part. I think Tony's movement... It's not that it didn't exist, but it wasn't having the same effect that it normally does. Gagey 
constantly angling, constantly turning, and finding counters the whole way. Just, just a, I think easily the best performance of Justin Gagey's entire career against the most dangerous guy he's ever fought. I think by probably it's this guy or Poirier, uh, Poirier or Ferguson. And I think Ferguson's body of work is probably better than Poirier's. Due respect to Dustin Poirier, he's a phenomenal fighter as well. Uh, Again, the chopping right hands that he was landing, the left hooks, just... uh, Again, it's not that he landed every punch he threw, but he landed a lot. A lot of blows. And they were almost all heavy, and then... One of the scary things, I think, is that fight got towards its conclusion. Justin Gagey has never really shown off a jab. Not to say he doesn't have one, but he's never really used it all that much. The blows that actually ended the fight were jabs. He just jabbed Tony Ferguson in the face and broke his nose and kind of finally made made things go, okay, that's enough. He started with, not wild, but he started with the full power, uh, you know, Haymaker has a negative technical connotation attached to it, but he started with his bombs, and then as the fight went on, got more technical to the point where he's, at the end, jamming. Again, backwards from how, from how you would generally structure a fight. You start with the jab, you loosen things up, you make reads, you get more technical, then as their, as their game deteriorates, you start with the power. He started with the power, and then slowly backed off, started getting more and more technical and precise as the fight went on, rather than the reverse. So, um, Again, unbelievable performance by Justin Gagey in the biggest fight of his career. Uh, now interim UFC lightweight champion, and now we have to discuss a bit of the unfortunate circumstance. What I think is going to happen versus what I want to happen. What I want to happen is Gagey versus Khabib. I favor Khabib in that fight. Um, I know I favored Tony here, but I also said, uh, you know, I he, I think Gagey has certainly has ways to win. He's a bit. He's got probably the most power of anyone in that division. Uh, he's a tough guy. He's not afraid of the violence. I didn't really expect... If there was anything that surprised me about this fight, it wasn't really the outcome. I said I wouldn't be shocked if Gagey won. I'm not. But if you would have told me that Gagey was able to properly manage a fight over the full five rounds, basically... Uh, that, I think, was what was surprising. If, and I think most people were on this boat, if you were going to say that Gagey was going to win, you figured he'd land the big bomb early in the first two and a half rounds, and that would lead to a finish. Because the conventional wisdom was the longer this fight goes, the more Tony's cardio, the more his pace, the more his ability to kind of break you down would start to take over. And there was that moment at the end of the second. Again, the first round, Gagey pretty much all the way. Second round, Tony has some success. Gagey has some success. Gagey was winning the round, I thought. But then Tony lands that big uppercut at the end, and you kind of thought maybe, okay, Tony's about to start turning this around. That's 
kind of the sign of things to come. And then second round starts and Gagey's having none of it. Just gets right back to work. Uh, Bludgeoning Ferguson. Uh, So the ability of Gagey to manage himself and manage a fight over that distance, uh, that, again, if there was anything that surprised me, it was that and just how... The, how one-sided the fight was. Again, Tony had success, but the fight was large, was almost, I wouldn't say entirely, but almost entirely going the way of Justin Gagey, and that that surprised me. Um, so, again, do I favor Khabib against Justin? Yeah, I... Yeah, I do. Um, would I be shocked if Justin beats Khabib? Not really, actually. Uh, again, he's got power. He's got really good defensive wrestling. But Khabib is Khabib's kind of like Tony in the sense that there's not a whole lot of parallels you can draw between them and someone else. You can't look at... Uh, there's certain fighters who you can look at, okay, they did X, they performed this way against this other fighter. And there's reasonable parallels that can be drawn between one fighter and a champion, you know. Uh, I mean, if you want to, like, take Kamaru Usman, right? Usman, very, very good, UFC welterweight champion. But if you want a generalized feel about how someone's going to perform against him, there are other fighters who do what, who fight in a similar fashion, who have the wrestling style, who have a lot of the control aspects. So, again, there's things that Usman does that are unique to Usman, but you can you can draw reasonable parallels. There's not really a reasonable parallel at lightweight between anyone in Tony Ferguson or anyone in Khabib. Um, there's other wrestlers at lightweight, obviously, but there's no one who does what Khabib does, the way Khabib does it. And he is, again, and again Tony. Tony's kind of a unique guy at lightweight. Not a lot of people do what he does. So, you try. The point being, there's not a lot of parallels that you can draw about Justin's fighting with anyone else relative to Khabib. So, again, favor Khabib. Wouldn't be shocked if Justin wins, but uh, that's the fight I want next. That's the fight I think they should make. Here's the problem for those of us that really want that fight next. Uh, Justin looked to have badly broken his uh, left fin- his left index finger, if nothing else, in this fight. Um, which I'm kind of surprised he hasn't done earlier. Uh, I listened to a an interview that Luke Thomas did with uh, UFC fighter Brad Riddell, who's a kickboxer of some 70, I think, bouts, and undefeated in MMA, 2-0 in the UFC, fights out of city kickboxing. And he noted... Um, that a lot of Justin's punches land not with the uh, the big knuckles. You know, if you make a fist, uh, you have your knuckles at the top of your hand. If you then go down your fingers to that second, I think the technical term would be like the second distal phalange joint. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. But instead of you know where your fingers connect to your hand, that uh, that that finger joint just down from the knuckles. A lot of his punches tend to land there instead of up by the hand. And I hadn't noticed that about Justin. I knew he, you know, had occasionally awkward punching technique, but I've paid attention to 
how he punches some of the time in this fight in particular, and I will when I go back and rewatch some of his other stuff. And I think Riddell is correct. He does a lot of landing with, uh, again, with those knuckles more so than the, the ones you traditionally would land with. So his left index fingers busted up pretty badly. He actually noticed it during the post, during his post-fight interview, looked down his saw and went, ah, wrapped it up immediately in his t-shirt. Um, so his timetable for return is unknown. Not to say it's going to be, you know, forever, but unknown at the moment. He, you know, it's not like he got out of this unscathed, and I don't just mean the broken finger. Tony had moments of success. He did get punched. He did get dropped. So we're not sure if his timetable for return and you know, however badly broken that finger is. I think he mentioned after the, I think one of the things he said to the commentary team post-fight when he was celebrating, he wanted Tony to break his nose so he could have an excuse to get it fixed. <laughs> He might have some nasal issues, which are not uncommon for fighters. Uh, so if he's going to have to get some stuff done, which is not unreasonable, the UFC is going to jump on Connor Khabib too. They just are. There's too much money on the table for that fight, for them to not pounce on that at the I mean, the reality is the UFC could just do that right now, apropos of nothing but their desire for the payday that it represents. There's no contractual obligation to just engage you to give him the next shot. None. Dana White can say whatever he wants in public. It has no legal... It ha- None of his public statements represent a legally binding agreement. Not a one of them. And if the UFC just wants to go ahead with... Uh, with Connor Khabib too, that's what they're going to do. And I think, again, there's there's so much... That fight represents so much money. Their first one, the most successful pay-per-view in the history of MMA. All of it. MMA's not an old sport, fair enough. That's the most successful pay-per-view in the history of the sport. That's one of the most successful pay-per-views of all time. Um... I think all-time it would rank behind Mayweather, Pacquiao. I'm going to find out, actually. Let me have a look here. Let's see if I have a... I think we're going to have a list here. Um, let's see. History. List of sportsmen. Give me that. Um, let's see, that deals with professional wrestling. Uh, yeah, so if we're talking just MMA, Connor Khabib was 2.4 million, give or take. Did I... That, that represented... Good lord. Okay. Not only is that the highest, um... And again, this is... Uh... This is not official. Uh, there's the UFC doesn't really publicly release them. Uh, they might have to when it comes to again some of the stuff uh, now that they're exclusively on ESPN because ESPN is owned by Disney as a publicly traded company. But UFC it, 229 reported at 2.4 million buys, which represents 180 million dollars in revenue. 
The next one was uh, Diaz McGregor 2, which did a buy rate of $1.65 million and made half as much money. That is the most successful pay-per-view the UFC has ever put on, that the professional, the MMA has ever put on, by double its closest competitor, based on available information. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, so, again, if we look all-time, um, again, that is behind... Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao, which was 4.6 million. Jeez. Um, okay, you had uh, the fight between De La Hoya and Mayweather, which did 2.4. So right about there. Um, okay, that is... So, yeah, I. point being, that fight represents a catastrophic amount of money in that particular respect. And they'd be... They're going to try and cash in on that particular rematch if, at all, if they can feasibly make it work. And at the moment, the only thing stopping them would be travel restrictions. Again, I know what the UFC is saying publicly. Dana White's public statements when it comes to matchmaking it means nothing. It means very, very little. So I wouldn't I want them to. Let me be very clear about that. That's what I want. I want Justin Gagey's finally being the guy to unseat Tony Ferguson as far as, you know, his run. That should be rewarded with a title shot next period. But I'm not going to pretend that there aren't financial realities at play. So we'll see what happens. I hope it's Justin versus Khabib because that is the those are the t- that is the fight to make. But we all know that Connor is such a X factor. And such a giant uh, cash cow that the standard rules don't apply to him. And again, there's only time will tell on this one. I hope it's Justin Khabib. I imagine what we're going to see is Connor Khabib before we see Justin get his title shot, if I had to guess. Uh, nevertheless, great fight. That unseated uh, young. Uh, Joanna and Zhang as my fight of the year right now for 2020. Uh, brilliant fight. Can't wait to watch it again. Uh, as soon as I'm able to. Alright, co-main event. Um, little bit of an odd stoppage here. I, I'll get to it in a second. Henry Cejudo defeats Dominic Cruz via TKO 458 of the second round. Um... About the stoppage, uh, Cruz misses an uppercut, looks to kind of duck and level change, either to actually change level or just to fake Cejudo out. Cejudo is throwing a kick at the same time, adjusts it to a knee, smacks Cruz sideways across the jaw, Cruz drops, 
Cejudo pounces on him, lands a right, looks to swarm and finish. Cruz is on his way back up to his feet when the fight stopped. Um, I suppose I should phrase it like this. Not the best stoppage in the world. I, as an observer, can live with it. But if I, you know, where do I think it falls on the objective scale of best to worst? Probably just on the wrong side of bad. Um, which, I mean, I mean, the reality is it doesn't matter, right? I, I can think of a grand total of one fight in the 12, 13 years I've been watching the sport where an outcome of a fight was overturned due to something other than a drug test issue. Like, by and large, fight ends, and if you're a fighter, you're screwed. That's it. That's the end of the fight. You have nothing else. It's, again, there is an appeals process, but it is laughable. It exists only to keep the athletic commissions from being sued for a lack of due process, I think. Right? I think that's it. I can, again, I can remember one. It was a fight between, um, I believe it was Drew Dober and Leonardo Santos. Uh, let me double check that. Um, no, not Leonardo Santos. And I think it was Drew Dober was the other guy in question. Um, oh, Silva. Yeah, it was it was Drew Dober and Leandro Silva. Um, that's really the only one I can think of where the ending of the fight was clearly just an error on the referee's part, and the relevant athletic commission, in this case the CABMMA, said, no, we're changing the result. I can think of other fights that probably should have had their results overturned. Uh, Iwan Kutalaba and Magomed Ankalaev. Now let me be clear, that doesn't mean I don't understand how the referee arrived at the decision he did. It means... Again, I think you can have a discussion about, okay, did the referee do anything objectively wrong or stupid? And you can you can look at, okay, how did the ref come to this conclusion? Were they at a bad angle? Did blows look more devastating than they were because of that? And we're always dealing with a an event done in real time. I mean, even that fight, actually, there's a... I think before that, there was a fight between... Uh, was it Mac? I think it was Mac Danzig and Matt Wyman. Um, gonna confirm that very quickly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that was called a technical submission, but uh, Danzig was not at all out. Uh, just a straight up botch by the ref. Uh, the definition of intelligent defense is very nebulous. And I think it is so deliberately. It means that any time a fighter wants to 
question the outcome of a fight, the athletic commissions basically get to say, well, was the referee acting in good faith and acting to the best of his his or her available knowledge at the point in time? And the answer to that is almost always yes. So you never see, even again, even fights that should be overturned, not because the referee is some kind of egregious moron, but because they made a mistake. Maybe an understandable one. But the entire the entire mechanism by which a fighter might have redress in the instance of official failure basically doesn't work. I mean, uh, what was the other one? Um, Friggin' James Krause in the scoring of his last fight when one of the judges was like, got his black belt from one of the other fighter's coaches. I'm sorry, this is a wild conflict of interest. Now, you can still argue that James Krause lost that fight. That's a very reasonable argument. Doesn't mean that's not a wild conflict of interest for that particular judge to be judging anything that that fighter does, or that that coach does. And, again, does James Krause have any... Nothing actually... I think he might have filed a claim, but nothing came of it. Because the institutional authority does not at any point wish to concede that they've done anything wrong. So, the fighter... And again, that is not at all to say that I think Dominic Cruz got screwed here. Alright? Was the stoppage great? Not really. Was it... uh, The worst stoppage? No. Not at all. Was it one that, you know... I mean, I as a fan can live with. Yeah, I can live with it. But I don't have to deal with the real-world repercussions of a marginal call, potentially even a wrong one, potentially a bad call, not going my way. A fighter does. Guess what happens if a ref screws a fighter like that? You make half as much money, you get a loss on your record, halting your forward momentum, uh, and, you know, you've incurred physical trauma along the way. But, hey, there's no means of redress. Ugh. Sorry, I didn't mean to go too far on a tangent there. Again, I'm not saying Cruz was robbed. I'm really not. But if I can use that moment to point out a, what I think is a giant failure in the institutional or system that oversees fighting, I think it needs to be mentioned. Uh, Cruz, after the fact, said that he felt the re- he thought Keith Peterson smelled like alcohol and cigarettes. And to be fair, that's kind of how I always thought Keith Peterson. Sm- I've never met Keith Peterson. I've never. I've only seen him, but you know, if you saw a picture of that guy, you might go, "Yeah, he probably smells like you know <laughs> cheap whiskey and cigarettes." Uh, but that's the fact that he looks that way does not necessarily mean. I mean, again, if you look at like Mike Beltran, you fully expect him to smell like chewing tobacco. That doesn't mean that, A, they're, they've actually engaged in anything like that recently, or B, that they're bad at their jobs. I don't think Keith Peterson is a bad referee. Has he had marginal calls in the past? Yes. Every referee has. Was this a bad call? Not a great one, if nothing else. <laughs> I think we'd pretty clearly say that. But you know, Cruz saying that at the moment, I he said like I, when I got to the event to the venue and found out he was my ref, I met, he, I wanted a different ref, 
If Bruce is actually kind of trying to intimate that the man was somewhat intoxicated while performing his job, that's a very serious allegation. And if Cruz is actually going to make that allegation official, Peterson refed other fights on this card. I if anyone else wonder if anyone else has a similar complaint. Uh, if Cruz is just spitting into the wind because he's pissed that he lost. On the one hand, okay, I understand. Dominic Cruz is an ultra competitive person who just was in his mind on the wrong end of a bad call. Uh, ultra competitive people under those circumstances, under even under clear losses, ultra competitive people are generally not happy or, or very generous. And I'm not surprised by this, nor do I necessarily think they are obligated to be. Uh, you know, the way that we tend to think that they should, you know, we have this bizarre image in our heads of how fighters should behave that's still steeped in a lot of the. Uh, mysticism and propaganda of martial arts. We're talking about athletes who are ridiculously competitive, engaged in an incredibly dangerous activity that incurs physical trauma, all of all of which while they're being underpaid. I'm sorry, I I don't know why you think people under those circumstances with those types of personalities should be paragons of virtue. Look, again, do we all think it would be nice? Sure. But really, I'm going to go out on a limb and go, who cares? Who who actually cares? Dominic Cruz is a sore loser. So what? Any successful athlete at the highest level, and bear in mind, we are talking about the very highest level. Do you find... Even above-average competitors in professional sports who can be good sports about losing? Yeah. You, you you talk about the very best? I would venture that to an individual, they are, they are bad losers. Now, maybe it doesn't manifest itself the same way, but... You know, uh, I mean, there's the... Uh, what? There's the documentary series right now airing about uh, the... 98 Bulls on ESPN. Great series, by the way. Um, You think Michael Jordan's not a sore loser? I guarantee you he is. He's admitted as such. Anyone that competitive is a bad loser. Now, they might fake it. They might put on a facade. And the facade, and given MMA fans penchant for self-delusion or desire to be lied to, they might want that, which I know they do, but I'm sorry, I don't expect people who go through what fighters go through to be gracious at every step. It's unrealistic. Utterly unrealistic. I mean, a lot of people might not have actually been paying enough attention to this, but let, I mean, take Demetrius Johnson even. He loses that very close fight to Henry Cejudo, but I thought he won. And and his interview is not, you know, pitching a fit, but he very calmly and very politely explains why he thinks it's wrong. Do you consider that to be a, you know, a sore loser? Because he delivered it better? Maybe? That's... Again, I I just... I am 
profoundly over the notion that athletes are role models. They're not. Quite frankly, they shouldn't be. I mean, look, do we want... Do I, I'm not trying to encourage bad behavior, but why should we... I, I do not subscribe to the notion that we should foist upon these people going through extraordinary things to fulfill extraordinary personal ambition in the face of massive adversity to behave like they're saints. That's just, again, it is wholly unrealistic. Would I, again, that said, if I strip away my, you know, objectivity and my desire to, you know, and just you know, reduce me to my basest stimulus response, would I prefer fighters represent themselves with good, you know, have good sportsmanship and, uh, you know, take losses with good humor, I suppose for want of a better expression? Yeah, I think if you replicate that at scale, that's kind of more what you want. I also think the majority of people who take losing well don't... Most of them, if we're talking about performances at a high level, most of them are deliberately downplaying their disappointment and their frustration for the sake of appearances and whatever that represents. Privately... Almost none of them take losses that well. Anyone who's hyper-competitive, and to be an athlete at any lo- at that level, you have to be hyper-competitive. They don't just want to win. They hate losing. Most, I wouldn't say most, the number of hyper-competitive people who say that they hate losing more than they like winning it will, would surprise you. It's not just that they want to win. It is the thought of losing is anathema to their being. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It means that they hate it viscerally in a way that is difficult to fully comprehend if you don't. And I just... Again, I I don't begrudge any fighter losing badly. Most fighters do. The vast majority of them. Some of them might you know have a, a rote response in public. Take a look at how they behave in private. Wait for stories to come out about some of them. They take losing badly because they invest so much physically and emotionally and financially. You think Tony Ferguson's taken this loss well? Uh-uh. Doesn't mean he's going to spiral into some sort of self-destructive pattern. I'm not saying that. I think it's not eating at him that he lost. I think he doesn't hate. And I mean hate that he lost that fight. So would you rather he be honest or would you rather you be lied to? I mean, and look, that's up to you. I'm not saying I'm not saying to anyone who would rather be lied to about it who would rather the presentation of the ideal be put forward, even if it is not reality, in the hopes of perpetuating the ideal and maybe getting that to bleed over more than what is perceived as whiny... uh, uh, I don't even know another word. Like, just... If that... If you would rather that, okay. 
I can see the argument. I really can. But understand that in large part you are asking for something that is not reality. And if, again, if that's what you want, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying shame on you. I'm saying be aware of it. That's all I'm saying. I mean, especially Bantamweight. There's a lot of bad losers at Bantamweight. Uriah Faber's a bad loser. He does it with a smile and with a you know, fairly upbeat tone in his voice, but he's a bad loser. Uh, Cody Garbrandt, not a good loser. Uh, TJ Dillashaw, horrible loser. And, you know, to TJ's credit, I'm not a fan, but when someone asked him about it post uh, the fight with Cejudo, he said, at what point did I say I wasn't a sore loser? Which is very fair. A lot of people made a lot of assumptions about how fight about how fighters should carry themselves. And I'm not saying in an ideal world maybe that that's even wrong. We don't live in an ideal world. We live in this one. I mean, again, most fighters, not good losers. And you can't be. You can't be okay with loss and be that successful doing that. You just can't. You can find different ways of it manifesting. You can present a different face to the public. But if you're going to be that competitive, and that is what drives you, you you can't be okay with loss. You just can't. It's it's just not how... I don't know why. I'm not deep into the psychology of that. I'm not a... I just don't have that background. <laughs> but if you look at all of the very successful athletes, you'll find that in common. They take loss badly because they hate losing. In some cases, more than they like winning. Some cases, the reverse. Some guys just really like winning. And when they don't win, they're not upset that they lost. They're upset that they didn't win. Most guys at the very elite level, I think, they hate losing. It's not just, oh, I'm sad I didn't win. I'm sad I didn't win, and I hate that I lost. And that is part of the psychological cocktail that makes up insanely successful competitive people in the athletics world. It just is. Don't know why. Uh, I couldn't speak to it any more than that, but I do know that I do know through enough empirical study, enough observation, that that's how it is. Um, as for the fight itself, Cejudo was doing a great job of backing Cruz to the fence, landing leg kicks when Cruz would move laterally, kicking the trailing leg. Cejudo found some success with punches. In the second, Cruz seemed to have a better feel for the distance. He was landing a bit more. But, again, then just got caught at the end of the round. And um, Yeah, I think if there's a big knock on Dominic Cruz's style, I think if there's... Knock is maybe the wrong word. I think if there's something that he's really lacking, if we're talking about his skill set, and it's not anything you can really make up, he's not got a lot of sting on his punches. He's not a big puncher. Or kicker, really. It's not that he... Again, I'm not saying the man has pillow fists, but there's circumstances where he lands punches and you know if he had more oomph on them, They'd, ha they'd produce a different result in his opponent. That's not even, you know, he'd finish somebody. 
it's they'd step differently. They wouldn't close distance the way they do. They'd be there's just realities to fighting someone who has power in their blows or has more power in their blows than someone who has less power in their blows. Cruz has less power and I just think that's kind of the reality he finds himself up against. I'm also talking about a guy coming off of a, you know, three and a half year layoff almost. Like that's absurd. Um so credit to Cejudo. He had a good game plan. He executed very well. He timed that knee uh, or adjusted the kick, however you kind of want to look at that. Exceptionally well. Uh, swarmed for, to force, you know, to get the referee to stop the fight. Uh, you know, kudos to him. That's the first guy to ever stop Dominic Cruz with punches. That's the first time Cruz has been stopped at bantamweight. So, again, good on Cejudo. Uh, Cejudo then announced he was retiring. <laughs> Um, I don't know how much of this is. He said since that he does plan on retiring, but that money talks and he would be willing to come back for the right amount of money. I don't know how much of this is him genuinely wanting to go out on top and how much of this is public negotiation. Um, and only time is going to tell. Do I really expect him to do I fully expect Henry Cejudo to never fight again? Probably not. Retirements in MMA are a little bit like retirements in professional wrestling. Uh, they just don't stick most of the time. So, I don't know. We will see. Um, I will say this. If this is purely a stunt for negotiation, uh, he did not let some of his coaches in on it, or they are great actors, because there was one who was basically in tears listening to Henry Cejudo talk about moving on. Um, if Henry Cejudo does move on, he's in an odd spot because he's had a very short career. But he's accomplished some impressive things. Simultaneous two-division champion, defended both of his titles, not while holding both of them, but he did defend both of them. He defended flyweight, he's now defended bantamweight. Um... He likes to say he's the great... I know he likes to say I'm the greatest combat sports athlete of all time. I don't buy that. Um, he's one of the most versatile. Absolutely. But I think if we're talking about best combat sports athletes of all time... Um, here's one of the things you have to understand about Henry Cejudo. Um, Olympic gold medalist, right? Unbelievable achievement. Not going to knock that at all. You know what happened to him the next Olympics? Could not make the national team to represent the United He tried. The, the, the Olympics, after his gold medal win, he tried to qualify for the team and couldn't. He transitioned, got into MMA, found some success, some very high-level success. Short, short career if he's actually done. But did accomplish great things. I'm more inclined to believe that sustained dominance over a prolonged period of time is more impressive than short-term excellence. My opinion. So if we're talking greatest combat sports athletes of all times, of all time, um, again, versatility across multiple disciplines, yeah, I think Cejudo qualifies in that discussion. 
just straight up best. Uh, I don't think he has much of anything, in all honesty, on um, like Alexander Karelin, uh, Sari Yoshida, um, Kari Ichi. Uh, these are th- those are all amateur wrestlers, but they're all multiple-time gold medalists, multiple-time world champions. I mean, Karelin went like 10 years without being, seven years without being scored on in Greco-Roman competition internationally. I'm sorry, nothing Henry Cejudo has done really compares with that level of dominance over a prolonged period of time. Not to say Henry hasn't accomplished great things. He absolutely has. But is he the greatest combat sports athlete of all time? I don't think so. If he, and this is one of the other reasons people are, I mean, again, retirements in MMA being questionable, sure. He's also only 33. God, he's younger than I am. I have wasted my life. Um, but he's also been competing since he was in the single digits. I mean, that guy started wrestling before he was 10. I guarantee it. He's been competing in the toughest sports in the world. Wrestling and then MMA are two of the toughest sports in the world. I firmly believe that. He's been doing that for almost 30 years. If he just is done because he's tired of it, I don't blame that guy at all. Not one bit, man. So, I don't know. Um, The UFC's... When asked about what he... Bantamweight is such an odd division. It is full of talent, right? Full of talent. It has never really had a sense of normalcy, or it's been very intermittent. I mean, consider the history of the Bantamweight division in the UFC. Dominic Cruz uh, becomes the inaugural champion, beating Scott Jorgensen. They just promoted the WEC belt, basically. Um, He fights Uriah Faber. A little bit later, he fights Demetrius Johnson. He gets injured is out for a while. Uh, you get an interim title with Henan Barrow. He defends that. He gets promoted. Defends that. Loses to TJ. So we barely get a interim to a full promotion. New champion in TJ. Defends that twice. Little bit of normalcy. Winds up defending against Cruz coming back from a long layoff. Cruz wins. Cruz gets a, cele- a celebrity fight with Uriah Faber rather than either an immediate rematch with Dillashaw or one of the top contenders. Cruz wins. Cruz fights Garbrandt. Garbrandt beats Cruz. Garbrandt then loses to TJ. TJ defends. TJ goes down, loses, is stripped because he fails a drug test. Cejudo wins the vacant belt, beats Cruz, not a top contender. Cruz coming off, Cruz being unranked in the division, coming off a three and a half year layoff almost. And now vacant. That division has never functioned normally, people. Not for any sustained period of time. Um... Dana White's stated preference is Peter Yan versus somebody. Uh, Peter Yan should have been fighting for the belt here, but I can say that because they were going to give this fight to Jose Aldo anyway. Um, Ugh. So, Yan versus somebody, sure. They had signed Yan and Marlon Marais, I think, uh, before the pandemic hit. I don't know if they can remake that fight given travel restrictions, but what... I- and what have you. Um, I think Cejudo said he'd like to see a four-man tournament between Jan, Sterling, um, Marais, and Sandhagen. Which, in all fairness, 
is a heck of a four-man tournament to crown it to crown a champion. Like that's that's three great fights are going to come out of that in all in all probability. Um, I don't know. I I really don't know what. Um, I don't know how what they're going to do, which fight it's going to be. I don't know who's available given the pandemic, but. I would like to see that division function normally. You know, I really, really would. So, uh, yeah, that was your co-main. Um, I don't know. Again, not a not the biggest fan of the stoppage, but again, I can live with it. And the reality is, nothing's going to be done about it. Even if you think it's a bad stoppage, that nothing is going to change about that outcome. There's no way the Florida State Athletic Commission or the Florida, I think that's the Florida Boxing Commission uh, that oversees MMA. They're never going to admit fault. They're never going to overturn that. They won't overturn. Uh, they won't overturn egregious stoppages. This was, even if you think it was bad, was not egregious. Such is the life of a fighter, I guess. You are partially sought after and an integral part of a multi-billion dollar industry, but you get the short end of every possible stick along the way. Uh, Alright, next up. Francis Ngannou defeated Jarzinho Rosenstrike via knockout 20 seconds into the first round. And I mean, Look, I can say that Ngannou has flaws in his punching technique. He does. He squares up too much every time he comes forward. His chin is fairly high up in the air. But I mean, does it really matter if your opponent can't make you can't punish you for it? Um, I mean, it's a twenty-second fight. I still don't know that Nganu has actually fixed any of the problems, uh, any of the habits that Stipe exploited in their fight. Because no one's been able to go more than a couple of minutes with the guy since. Okay, the Lewis fight, but the Lewis fight was such an aberration in terms of both Nganu and Lewis, I'm not sure how much value it gives to assessment. Uh, do I still think he... Do I, would I favor him to beat Cormier or Stipe? Um, I don't know. I don't know at this point. I might still favor both of those guys over him if they made that fight, either of those fights. I think Stipe would probably try to replicate what he did in their first fight, and at the moment, I'm not sure why that wouldn't work again. I haven't seen Nganu. I haven't seen evidence of Nganu fixing what Stipe exploited. And he's not fought anyone with the wrestling pedigree of Daniel Cormier by a long shot. But outside of those two, uh, I mean, it's hard to pick against him, against anyone other than those two, and he should be fighting for the belt. We don't know what the state of heavyweight is right now. Uh, Stipe said he's in a position that, you know, he's potentially able to fight at some point in the future. He's also a first responder. He's a firefighter paramedic. 
And that, at the moment, comes with a lot of obligation given the pandemic, especially in the state of Ohio. So there's a lot still up in the air right now. Um, you know, Cormier, uh, he's kind of waiting for the title fight, so I don't think Cormier would accept even an interim fight with Francis. It's going to be full belt or nothing for him next. But Cormier's 42, I think. He's over 40, if nothing else. Uh, so, yeah, heavyweights, uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions about the top of heavyweight right now. Uh, at a catch weight of 150, because Jeremy Stevens missed weight by five and a half pounds. Well, non-title fight, so four and a half pounds. Uh, Calvin Cater TKO's Jeremy Stevens, 242 of the second round. Uh, Stevens had some success early, but Cater's a bit of a slow starter. He likes to get a read on you. And then he has really good hands. He's got great combinations. Uh, and the finishing sequence in particular was brutal. Uh, he <clears throat> he and Stevens kind of stepped in together. Stevens threw a right hook. Uh, <laughs> Cater threw a right elbow and crashed into him, just, you know, nose, upper lip area. Floored him, got on top, pounded him out. A left elbow from Cater opened up a nasty gash on the forehead of Jeremy Stevens. Stevens was out for a while. It took him a while to kind of get his head, his wits back about him. Um, Great stuff from Cater all the way around. Um, I think one of the post-fight suggestions I saw for him was uh, the Korean zombie. And, you know what? Sure. Be a great fight. Uh, Zombie might be due for something bigger if he's aiming upwards, given that he just stopped Frankie Edgar. Um, Heck, Edgar. I mean, I don't know where Edgar's ranked right now, but Cater and Edgar? uh, Cater and Ortega, maybe? You know, something like that. But he's... Calvin Cater is due a... He's due a meaningful, higher-profile fight next. Uh, and kicking off the main card, Greg Hardy defeats Jorgen DeCastro via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. I was 29-28 for Hardy. Thought DeCastro had the first. Um, this fight sucked. It's low-level heavyweight MMA. DeCastro had a lot of su- had some success early, especially with low kicks. And then Hardy checked one in the second round and injured DeCastro's foot somehow, and then his output dropped to nothing. Hardy's output was nothing plus two. And he won the fight. It's Look, the fight sucked. I think Greg Hardy won the fight. I mean, if I'm scoring it, yeah, I scored it for him. Uh, terrible fight. On the prelims, Anthony Pettis defeated Donald Cerrone via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Um, I scored it for Pettis but wouldn't have objected to Cerrone and kind of thought maybe that Cerrone was going to get the decision. Um, not a bad fight. Alexi Olenek, with one of the bigger upsets of the evening, defeats Fabricio Verdum via split decision, 29-28. Um, Verdum, yeah. you know, long time off, couple of years, he's 42. Um... Olenek pushed a pretty crazy pace, actually, for heavyweights. Um, 
You know, I don't think 29-28 for either man is unreasonable. Uh, my internet connection had some issues during this fight. I didn't really see the full thing, so my commentary on that one is limited. Uh, Carla Esparza defeated Michelle Watterson via split decision. There was a 30-27 for each woman and then a 29-28 for Esparza. I thought Watterson won the fight. Um, this fight might stir up some controversy. It kind of came out that one of the judges could hear Daniel Cormier's commentary and what Cormier was saying kind of was influ influenced how he scored this fight a little bit. Um, that's a pretty big deal, actually, for these empty arena shows. Um, most, a, a lot of uh, judges are seated in somewhat auditory proximity to cornermen. But cornermen are, by design, partisan commentators in terms of what they're saying to their fighter how they might try to hype up what a fight, what their fighter's doing, downplay what the other guy's doing, so on and so forth. If you're a commentator, you're objectively, you're theoretically an impartial observer. If you've got a judge that can hear what Daniel Cormier is saying about the fight, that's go that is going to influence how they score the fights. That's going to be something that needs to be addressed. Uh, I mean, look, 30-27 for Esparza, I do not agree with at all. If you say Esparza, you scored the fight for Esparza, I'm, I don't necessarily disagree. I scored it for Watterson. I think it was 30-27 for Watterson. But a couple of those are close rounds. So I'm not going to complain about 29-28 for either woman if that's what your scorecard was. I don't think 30-27 for Esparza is an especially defensible position. Uh, then Vicente Luque defeated Nico Price via TKO Doctor Stoppage 337 of the third. These two had a fun little brawl. It's a shame neither of them got a post-fight bonus. Um, Price had some success early. Luque then started doing Vicente Luque things. He landed better punches, started moving a little bit, uh, dropped Price with a left, I think it was. Uh, yeah, it was a left hand to the right eye. Followed him onto the ground a little bit, but didn't get too crazy. And then as the action kind of stalled out, the ref wanted Luque's right eye checked. Luque's right eye not only had a big cut, but was swollen completely shut. Uh, yeah. Good stoppage. Um, Luque gets back on the winning track. Luque, again, terribly underappreciated welterweight. Dude went on a six-fight winning streak. Barely cracked the top 10, lost to Steven Thompson, and fell all the way to 13. Uh, ridiculous. He's still a top 10 welterweight if we're going, if we talk about the, that division objectively. Uh, on the prelims, Bryce Mitchell, good grief this fight. Defeats Charles Rosa via unanimous decision. 30-25, 30-25, and 30-24. My scorecard was 30-24. That's 10-8 for Bryce Mitchell in all three rounds. In all three rounds, I don't think Charles Rosa had a single moment of meaningful offense. He was not only on the back foot, this was mostly a grappling match. He was not only on the wrong side of that positionally and damage-wise, I don't think he ever did anything offensive. And we were under the new scoring criteria, so I think 10-8s were, were valid in all, in all three rounds. Uh, absolute Demolition by Ryan Mitchell, by Bryce Mitchell, excuse me, of Charles Rosa. Um, Reebok, get that man some camo shorts. I know you tried, but apparently it looked tie-dyed, not camo. If you don't know the difference between the two, I can't help you as a human being. 
and let's get him uh let's get him a bigger you know a bigger fight uh let's get him you know someone like Brian Ortega maybe Ryan Hall uh let's get that guy a step up in competition yeah and kicking off the entire affair Ryan Spann defeated Sam Alvey via split decision this fight sucked I don't know what else to tell you uh your post fight bonuses such as they were fight of the night no brainer Gagey Ferguson Performances of the night, Gagey and Ngannou. Uh, Justin Gagey is now, I believe, notched nine post-fight bonuses in seven UFC fights. Whew. Uh, yeah, it was it was nice to see fights again. Again, my some of my concerns around the safety and responsibility of holding an event at all right now aside, there were some really good fights. Uh, Ngannou Rosenstrike, I mean, it was 20 seconds. Doesn't do all, most fights that short don't do a whole lot for me. Cejudo and Cruz was pretty good for as long as it lasted, even if the finish kind of left a wonky taste in my mouth. Main event, great fight. Cater and Stevens, good fight. Uh, I think again, I think part of the problem was the time that it took to get from Cater and Stevens to Ferguson and Gagey. Uh, just a long, just felt like a long event. Just really felt long. Um, yeah, so thank you to everyone who followed along in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania with my live coverage. I apologize for being rusty. Been a few weeks, and the totality of how I do coverage in terms of watching it, writing it up, looking for GIFs or videos that are relevant to the... It's There's a flow to it, there's a rhythm to it that I was just out of. Uh, for that one. So I don't, be clear, I don't think it's awful. But I felt rusty. And if that came across, wanted to acknowledge it. All right. Um, yeah. yeah um, oh, I suppose the last thing I could say about this. Again, there was no crowd. Um, and a crowd in MMA is a mixed bag. A good crowd is... A, it is an unreplaceable X factor in how enjoyable a fight is. There is no substitute for a good crowd. Main event kind of speaks to that. No crowd. That crowd would have lost their minds at that uppercut that Ferguson landed in the end of the second round. Would have been going nuts every time Tony got wobbled and wound up taking a step back and his face was getting busted up. Would have been crazy. Not having to listen to people booing because they're drunk and bored or hearing the woos. I hate the woos so much. Not having to listen to that, definitely a benefit. And being able to just hear everything in terms of uh, the physical sound that that two human bodies at velocity make when they clash into each other. People forget that a lot. So, again, positives and negatives. Me being me, uh, and you know my general distaste for my fellow human beings. Uh, I'm kind of okay with the with not having to deal with a crowd. But again, there's 
there's positives and negatives to that. There is no replacement for a great crowd. There just isn't. Uh, all right. So let us move on now to this Wednesday, currently scheduled, UFC on ESPN 9. Uh, assuming the fights go forward, the card looks like this. Uh, main event, the fight between Anthony Smith and Glover Teixeira. Not a bad fight. Um, Glover Teixeira's getting up there, but still kind of finds ways to get it done. Uh, he's on a three-fight losing, uh, winning streak, rather. Submitted Carl Robertson, submitted Iwan Kutulaba. I kind of thought Nikita Krylov beat him. Uh, in that last fight he was in. And Anthony Smith hasn't fought since... Uh, he, that big win over Gustafson. Um, yeah, I mean, his only loss since moving up to light... He only has two losses since moving up to light heavyweight. One since moving up to light heavyweight. Yeah, he lost to John Jones. In the interim, he finished Rashad Evans, he knocked out Rashad Evans, knocked out Shogun, submitted Uzdemir, and submitted Gustafson. Yeah, I'm going to pick Anthony Smith here. Um, Not that I dislike Teixeira, but Teixeira's a lot of repetition of the same thing. And I think Smith probably finishes him. There's a heavyweight fight between Ben Rothwell and Ovin St. Prue. Ovin St. Prue moving up to heavyweight because who cares? Like I said, I said that Ovin St. Prue spent the better part of the last decade being young and promising. Towards the end of that, you're neither young nor promising. Um, at this point, he is uh, two and three in his last five. Um, and he was just not going anywhere at light heavyweight, really. Uh, again, not that he couldn't win fights, but he just wasn't going anywhere. He's going to try his hand at heavyweight, not have to cut weight. If he's just done cutting weight and wants to, you know, write out his contract, I'm not going to blame the guy. Cutting weight sucks. Um, ben Rothwell, by contrast, uh, beat Stefan Struve in December of last year to break a three-fight losing streak. Um, I kind of like Rothwell here. It's not, I won't be shocked if OSP wins, but St. Prue struggles a little bit if you kind of press him, and Rothwell is a major bully. Lightweight fight between Alexander Hernandez and Drew Dober. Hernandez trying to right the ship a little bit. Uh, He beat Trinaldo in his last fight, but it was a fairly competitive affair. And Dober... Dober's riding a pretty good streak, actually. Yeah, he is 5-1 and one in his last six. The only loss to Benil Dariush. He knocked out his last fight, man. That knockout over Hakparast was impressive. Um, not sure here. This one could go either way. I'm going to lean towards Hernandez, I think, but... I'm not going to be shocked if Dober pulls that one out. A bantamweight fight between Ricky Simone and Ray Borg, assuming Ray Borg makes weight. Um, man, I don't know why Ray Borg can't make weight, but he can't make weight at, he struggled at flyweight, he struggled at bantamweight on occasion, um, 
Uh, I expect a lot of action in this fight. Uh, Simone had some stuff going for him. Had a good run going, then lost to Faber and lost to Rob Font. Uh, no shame in the Font loss. Font is a very good fighter. I'm going to lean towards Simone here. I think Borg will be very accommodating of his grappling. So, but we'll see. Uh, and Carl Robertson versus Marvin Vittori will kick off the main card. Robertson, uh, gone a little bit back and forth in the UFC. Uh, on a two-fight winning streak, but he's, uh, he wasn't beating guys of any real note. Uh, and Vittori... Vittori gave Israel Adesanya his second toughest fight in the UFC. Look at look at Adesanya's strength of schedule. Toughest fight, Gastelum. Second toughest, not Anderson Silva, not Yoel Romero, not Robert Whitaker, Marvin Vittori. Uh, Vittori, on a two-fight winning streak, I'm going to favor Vittori there. As for the prelims, Andre Arlovsky still exists. Um... On a rough stretch, man. He's got one win in... One, two, three, four, five... One win in his last six fights. Uh, rough. Anyway, he's fighting Felipe Linz. Uh, who is making his UFC debut after a run in both Bellator and the PFL. He won the 2018 PFL tournament. Took all of 19 off. Uh, that sucks. Now making his way to the UFC. I mean, I can't pick Andre Arlovsky at this point. I just can't. Uh, at lightweight, Mike, Michael Johnson moving back up. He will fight Tiago Moises. Johnson, he's got a bit of a rough stretch going. He's 2-5 and five in his last seven. One of those was a split decision over Andre Feely that could have gone, gone the other way, and then he beat Artem Lobov, but Artem Lobov sucks. Uh, he was having a lot of success against Josh Emmett before he got knocked out. Uh, I'm going to pick Johnson there, actually. Uh, I'm not familiar enough with Moises. I know he's fought in the UFC before, but not a lot. Women's bantamweight fight between Sejara Eubanks and Sarah Morris. Uh, I like Sarah Morris, but she tends to get squashed in some of these mean fights. And Eubanks likes to fight mean. I mean, Eubanks hasn't exactly had a great UFC run. She's 2-2 uh, two and two in the promotion and on a two-fight losing streak. Uh, I mean, the loss to Aspen Lad's understandable. Lad's very good. The loss to Betch Cohea, eh. Betch Cohea, not so good. Gonna go with Eubanks there, but if she stumbles here... That's a pretty big deal. Um, at lightweight, Gabriel Benitez moving up. Yeah, he's moving back up to. He's not fought in the UFC at lightweight. He's fought mostly there at featherweight. Moving back up after getting TKO'd by Sadiq Youssef. Be interested to see him up at lightweight. Uh, he's fighting Omar Antonio Morales Ferreira. Has that gentleman fought in the UFC? And they just have a different. Uh, some kind of a shorter name. I need, I need to know this now. 
Um, Omar Morales. He is Venezuelan. I think he's fought in the UFC once, actually. Yeah, he beat Dong Yun Ma. Okay, so... Uh, Morales and Benitez. I'm going to lean towards Benitez. Uh, Bantamweight fight between Hunter Azure and Brian Kelleher. Pretty easy pick for Kelleher here. Uh, I know Kelleher missed all of 19. Uh, but in but in January he won. Uh, didn't beat a world beater, but he's not fighting a world beater here either. So, yeah, going to go with Kelleher. And kicking everything off, we have another heavyweight fight because F my life. There are three heavyweight fights on this card. Who thought this was a good idea? Uh, Chase Sherman will fight Isaac Villanueva. Uh, Sherman, you know, up and down UFC career. On a th he's actually was cut from the UFC not too long ago. This is his return. Um, yeah, he lost three in a row in the UFC. Got cut. One three in a row outside. Uh, all of them first round stoppages. Now he, uh, his opponent, I don't think has fought in the UFC before. No, he is making his UFC debut on a four fight winning streak. Not really anything to sneeze at. Um, pff, tough one. I don't know enough about uh, Villanueva. I'll pick Sherman in the dark, but uh, either of those guys could win, and I wouldn't be terribly surprised. Uh, so, yeah, that's a Wednesday card, which I will be covering in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania, assuming the event goes through as planned. Uh, and then there will be, on Saturday, UFC on ESPN 10. Uh, all of this taking place from Jacksonville. Uh, this card, let's see, main event, Alistair Overeem and Walt Harris. Um, I know that you can't really talk about Walt Harris recently without talking about what happened to his stepdaughter. And I know he's participating, but they're talking about it, like the way they're talking about it and how frequently they're talking about it. It's kind of coming up on the line of... Uh, uncomfortable, exploitative. I don't think they've crossed it, but they're kind of approaching what happened there. I mean, Walt Harris talking a little bit about uh, some of the stuff he went through was heartbreaking. But, again, like every promo for the, every sit-down, they spent a lot of time on it. And I just, I don't know, it's its starting to move away from uh, the kind of storytelling you need to do for someone in that position towards the tawdry. I think it, if we don't go any further than we are right now, we'll be kind of on the verge of that, but we won't have crossed that line, my opinion. Uh, anyway, so Overeem and Harris... Um, I have a really hard time getting a feel for Alistair Overeem, Alistair Overeem's career, man. He's had so many ups and downs. They've come in such odd places. Uh, coming off of that loss to Rosenstreich, he had a lot of success in that fight, and then just at the end, got hit, got his lip split open awfully. Um, by contrast, Harris, 
Harris hasn't lost since he, he got disqualified for that illegal head kick against Mark Godbeer in 2017. Uh, he had the has the no contest with Arlovsky that was... Uh, he originally won, but that was overturned after he failed a drug test. Um, tough fight. Overeem's a bit chinny, and Harris can crack. But if Walt Harris falls too much into striking at Overeem's pace and rhythm, Overeem's one of the most competent technical strikers the heavyweight division has ever seen. It's a tough one for picking. Uh, I'm gonna pick... Probably gonna make me look stupid, but I'll pick over him. Again, I know he's a little bit chinny, but... I think Harris leaves himself open to be clinched, and if over him gets the clinch, he will... He's pretty devastating from there. Alright, co-main event, Claudia Gedalia and Angela Hill. There was a time I would have picked Gedalia without too much hesitation. I'm still going to pick her, but I won't be surprised if Hill pulls this off. Angela Hill seems to be really finding herself over her last few fights. So... Uh, relevant fight for strawweight, though. Uh, I'm not sure you'll get the next title challenger out of it, but you could. Uh, strawweight's in an odd position. I mean, Zhang just went through that war with Joanna. I mean, if she doesn't fight for the rest of 2020 after that fight, uh, who could possibly blame her? Uh... You've also got Ro the rematch between Rose Namajunas and uh, Jessica Andrade coming up that might crown your next title challenger, so... Hard to say. Some moving pieces, but a very relevant fight for that division, if nothing else. Alright, Edson Barboza is making his featherweight debut. I am shocked that he's going to be able to... that he's going to try that cut. I know he's in a rough spot. He's just 1-4 in, in his last five. But the losses were as such. To Khabib... Uh, unanimous decision over three rounds. A fifth-round doctor stoppage against Kevin Lee. He stopped Dan Hooker, got knocked out by Gagey, and fought Paul Felder to a split decision. I thought Barboza won that fight. But he's trying his hand down at featherweight against Dan Ige, who is a rough fight. Dan Ige has a grand total of one loss in the UFC, and that was against Julio Arce in his debut. Since then, he's won... Five in a row. Uh, rough fight. If Barboza is able to not lose a whole lot in the cut, Ige can be leg kicked, and Barboza has some devastating ones. But Ige is also a very smooth boxer, and that has caused Barboza a lot of problems. I'm gonna pick Ige, but yeah, I I just don't like Barboza at this point in his career, with all the years and the damage, trying to reinvent himself down a weight class. That historically doesn't go all that well. Uh, middleweight fight between Eric Anders and Christoph Yotko. There was a time I might have been excited for this fight, but Yotko's last few fights have not been impressive, and Eric Anders, ditto. Um... I kind of thought Anders lost the fight with Gerald Merchart. Um, I think I'm still going to pick Anders, but Anders needs a much better camp than he has. I would I shouldn't say better. 
whatever Eric Anders is doing in training right now, based on his last fight, is not really maximizing what he's shown himself to be capable of. There's a lot of stuff that he needs to get. Now, maybe that's not his coaches. Maybe that's him. Some guys can have the perfect coach for them, and it still just doesn't quite translate in the cage or in the ring. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I'm going to pick Anders, but... Yeah. Uh, heck of a featherweight fight here, actually. Marlon Vera and Song Yadong. Uh, Cheeto Vera's on a heck of a winning streak, actually. Won five in a row. Uh, finished all of them. Luigi Burin, Guido Canetti, Frankie Sainz, Noelin Hernandez, and Andre Ewell. Uh, his only losses... He's, uh, he debuted in an awkward spot in the UFC, um, but because he came off of a tough season. He's only lost to Davy Grant, John Lineker, and Douglas Silva de Andrade. Oh, he lost to Beltran, okay, in his debut, yeah. So he's got those four losses, but he's got some big wins. He's got some very impressive wins. Uh, stopped Brad Pickett in his last fight, armbarred Brian Kelleher. Um... Again, this is a pretty good fight, and whereas Song, Song being his family name, because uh, he's Chinese, coming off of a draw with Cody Staman that I thought was correct after the point deduction. Uh, yeah, Song's looked really good during his UFC run. Uh, you know, submitted Barat Kandare, TKO'd Felipe Dorantes, that was a big one. Beat Vince Morales, stopped Alejandro Perez. Perez was on a pretty good run at that time. So that's a good fight. I'm going to lean towards Vera, but good fight. Then our prelims, which will also be on ESPN as well as ESPN+. Plus. Uh, Anthony Hernandez and Kevin Holland. I think Hernandez has fought in the UFC before. I need to confirm that. Uh... Yeah, once, twice. Uh, he lost to Marcus Perez and then beat Jun Young Park. Lost with an anaconda choke, won with an anaconda choke. Uh, that seems fair enough. And he's fighting Kevin Holland. Kevin Holland, uh, up and down UFC career. I think he's 3-2. and two. Yeah, 3-2. and two. Um, Probably going to lean towards Holland, but... Uh, we'll see. Not a bad fight. At featherweight, Mike Davis will fight Giga Chikadze. Um, Giga had a pretty decent fight his last fight out, as I recall. Uh, yeah, the Jamal split. Both of his UFC wins have been via split decision, but I thought the Davis fight was his pretty handily. Uh, let's see. Do I have the wrong bout order here? Yeah, okay, I, I, this is missing a fight. Yeah, also on the main card, since I just forgot to mention it. Um, Matt Brown will fight Miguel Baeza. I mean, anytime Matt Brown fights, who can possibly complain about that? Um, you know, Brown coming off of the knockout over Ben Saunders. Um, and Baeza, I think this is Baeza's UFC debut, isn't it? He's fought maybe once there. Yeah, once he stopped uh, he stopped Hector Aldana. 
I know I covered that fight, but I can't remember too much specifically about it. Gonna go with Brown. Brown, the more proven fighter, but if Baeza is kind of the monster people want him to be, he's undefeated. Um, he might surprise some folks here. Anyway, um, sorry, I was looking at Mike Davis. Because he's fought in the UFC a few times. Yeah, lost to Gilbert Burns, beat Thomas... Oh, God, he's the one who gave Thomas Gifford that horrible beating that should have been stopped so many times. Uh, two technical strikers, but Davis is a bit more of a boxer. And if if Giga sticks with the kickboxing, I'm going to pick Giga here, but this could be a sleeper fight in terms of you know, enjoyable fights. Uh, women's flyweight fight. Courtney Casey will fight Mara Romero Barella. Going to go with Casey here. Uh, I know she's had a rough UFC run lately. Uh, two and three in her last five. A couple of those were splits that maybe could have gone her way. Uh, so, but Barella has, uh, has had a really rough run recently. Uh, one and three in her last four. One of those be that only win was a split decision. So uh, then at featherweight, Darren Elkins is going to fight Nate Landwer. You couldn't fit two crazier white dudes into a fence together, man. That's nuts. Um, I mean, Elkins just absorbed so much punishment. He's on a three-fight losing streak. He did nothing against Ryan Hall because he was terrified of his legs getting torn apart. I mean, Ryan Hall dropped him with kicks. Uh, I mean, Michael, he beat Michael Johnson, but took a lot of damage. Uh, he lost, Volkanovski put a beating on him for three rounds. Lama stopped him in the third. Uh, so he's like kind of on the downside, whereas Nate, Nate lost his UFC debut, I seem to recall. Yeah, against Herbert Burns. Uh, he was looking okay before he ate that knee. I'm going to pick Nate here, but eh, won't be shocked if Elkins wins. And then kicking everything off at heavyweight. Why, God, why do you do this to me? Uh, Rodrigo Nascimento. Depending on where he's from. Yeah, he's Brazilian, so that's what I'm going to go with for my pronunciation. Uh, undefeated, 7-0, and making his UFC debut against Dontale Mays. They've tried to make this fight twice before. It fell apart when the cards fell apart uh, due to the coronavirus. Mays, 7-3. and three. Uh, Dropped his UFC debut to Cyril Gaon. He got heel-hooked by Cyril Gaon. Oh, please just let it in quickly. Uh, go with Nascimento. Mays did not look impressive in his debut. Uh, but that's where we are with that event. So that will be Saturday. So we're going to have one event on Wednesday. That would be the 13th and then Saturday the 16th. That is the current plan. I will be covering them both. So hopefully I will see you for both of those in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. Um, please feel free to stop by, say hello. I always appreciate you guys spending some fight time with me giving me something to interact with between fights when I've got downtime, and I expect a lot of downtime. 
I expect these cards to be paced like the old FS1 cards. We're just going to draw these things out, sell as much ad revenue time as we possibly can, fill as much airtime for ESPN with qual with content as they can, and the only one who's going to suffer are the morons like me who have to watch the entire thing from start to finish. Oof. Gonna be rough. If I'm right. If I'm wrong, I will eat the requisite amount of crow and praise the pacing. I don't anticipate being wrong, but I might be. Um, okay, last bit of note on housekeeping here before we close up shop. Uh, UFC announced a few of the fights for UFC 250, which will take place June 20th. We do not have a location or a venue. I think the UFC is going to be trying to be back in Nevada by that point. Uh, the current plan for the May 23rd card of this month is to be at the UFC Apex Center in Vegas. That will depend on how the state of Nevada decides to proceed going forward, um, or how much the UFC can lobby slash bribe them to allow them to do their stuff again. Uh, we will have to wait and see on that, but so 250 doesn't really have either of those things yet. Uh, somewhere in the States is most likely. The announced fights so far, uh, a women's featherweight title fight between champion Amanda Nunes and Felicia Spencer. This will likely be the main or co-main. Um, if it's the main event, you need a solid co-main for... Look, Amanda Nunes is a great, great fighter. And there is certainly value and appeal to watching a great force of nature destroy people outside of their, who are overmatched. I mean, a giant chunk of Mike Tyson's career was built around that. Some of it was also built around knocking out really good guys. But, again, you do kind of, there is a chunk that there's always going to be, hey, let's watch someone who is great annihilate someone who isn't. There's appeal to that. And, Felicia Spencer, if you're going to have women's featherweight continue to exist, sure. Uh, especially since um, Megan Anderson is, I believe, in Australia and not able to travel to the United States, consequently. Um, I expect Amanda Nunes to demolish Felicia Spencer. It'll probably take... I don't think it'll happen in one round. Spencer is fairly tough and resilient. But... Um, yeah... And again, so there is value to that, but you do kind of want something. You do want something of uh, more substance, of more uh, a more competitive fight as well, near the top of the card to help kind of counterbalance that. The other fights announced right now are probably going to be on the undercard, with maybe one exception: uh, Juicier Formiga and Alex Perez. I expect that to be buried on the prelims because you can all say it with me: the UFC hates flyweights. A light heavyweight fight between Devin Clark and Alonzo Menafield. That just reeks of, you know, prelim fodder to me. It's filler, It's a filler fight. And Gerald Mearshart versus Ian Heinish. Not a bad fight, actually. That one could be on the main card of the pay-per-view, depending on how deep it is. Um, both those guys... Mearshart's... Won his last fight, he tapped out. Duran Wynn had the tough split decision with Eric Anders. Uh, submitted Trevin Giles before that. And Heinish. Uh, Heinish is on a rough stretch. He's on a two-fight losing streak to Derek Brunson and Omari Akhmedov. 
So maybe not, but again, that one I think might make the main card. Um, those are all now again. Those are the announced fights. We do not have about order yet. A bunch more. You know, that's four fights. There's going to be eight more coming down the pipe, uh, assuming normal procedures are in play. Uh, we have some other stuff that's been kind of suggested, but hasn't been. Uh, again, some of this got. Uh, jacked up when this when 250 had to be moved from the what would have been yesterday the ninth in uh, Sao Paulo to a date in the future in the United States. So that's all we have right now. Again, more fights will be coming. That is not the bout order. I will say this: if that is, that is a weak pay-per-view main card. Again. I don't expect that to be the bout order. I don't expect that to be the main card. If it is, yeah, no. Not a, not a strong card. Not a strong card. As simply four of the fights that will populate that event, sure. You have one fight that's going to be num- the, you know, the main or co-main, and you have other stuff that'll fill out some of the other parts of the card. Um, yeah. All right, uh, that is all the stuff we have right now. Not a lot of news. Um, not a lot of other stuff yet. Uh, I imagine some stuff's going to hit the fan going forward after we've had an event. We've had somebody test positive for COVID. We now have some, you know, data. I mean, again, there's a lot of stuff to kind of be sorted out now. So we will have to just kind of see how that plays out in the future. Um... Let me check Twitter one more time and see if anything crazy happened during the recording of this show. All right, nope, doesn't look like anything crazy has happened, so let's jump into the relatively succinct plug segment here. Uh, you can find me twice this week, uh, <laughs> covering UFC events on Wednesday and then again on Saturday, so that'll be something. Uh, we'll see how that goes. We will see how that goes. Um, last you know, a couple of weeks ago, Larry's uh, not Larry. Mark Radlich and I got together and we reviewed Netflix's third season of Castlevania, and we pretty well trashed it. Um, Mark also decided that I had challenged his masculinity somehow, and said he would review Devil Ma- the. This is from a couple of years ago. The Netflix anime uh, Devil Man Crybaby. We'll be reviewing that on his birthday. Um. Look, if I knew I could so easily manipulate Mark that way, I totally would have earlier. Uh, so you can look forward again. That's gonna be that happened on that show. We're not gonna review it until his birthday's in June, I think. So be a while, but uh, you can listen to us trash Castlevania season two, because three, three, because it's not very good. And then I we yell at critics because a bunch of them said still glowing things about Season 3, despite it being a bloated, repetitive mess. Uh, so, tune in for that. Uh, I think that's it for me, actually, those couple of things. So, thank you very much, everyone, for listening, for tuning in. I deeply appreciate it. Uh, like, comment, subscribe, give us a review. Uh, you can tweet me. I am at WinfreeMMA. It's W-I-N-F-R-E-E-M-M-A on Twitter. Um... And yeah, be back next week 
with potentially a double review slash double preview because the UFC's schedule is... They're trying to keep it popping. They're trying to turn it over. They've got to get to 42 events for the year if they want to get the full value of their <laughs> uh, contract with ESPN. So see you all next week. Until then, as always, stay safe out there, and please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.